Hello. Welcome to Landiforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Landiforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today, I am rejoined by Emmett Penny, who you may remember uh, came on the podcast to talk about corn with me in a previous episode. This time, we discussed Isis. No, not that one. Isis, a highly influential band credited with popularizing the sound of post-metal in the 2000s. As of this year, Isis have been inactive for a decade, and the sound they helped pioneer has largely receded from popularity in heavy music. And yet, their work continues to hold a powerful resonance years later. Emmett and I discussed the band's history, the political and philosophical themes they weaved through their lyrics, and how they fit into the broader culture of post-rock and post-metal in the 2000s. Thank you for listening. Congratulations on being the first repeat guest. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Um, Man, look at that. It's, uh, it turns out that if you want to talk about bands that I really like, I'm pro- probably more likely to you know, have you on. <laughs> um, you recently, you texted me like a while back and said that you'd kind of rediscovered the band Isis. What led you to, to that rediscovery? Like, how'd you get in, back into them? Oh, God, what was I doing? Uh, I've joined this group called Indie Thinkers, and we have like a three-time-a-week, like four-hour co-working session. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need, I was like, I need something to listen to that like gets me, gets me going. And then <laughs> uh, I just, for whatever reason, the album cover of Panopticon flashed in my head. Hmm. And I was like, damn, like that was such a cool record. Like I haven't listened to that band in years. Like, I wonder what it's like to go back and listen to them now. So um, I put it on and I was like, yeah, this still totally slays. And you and I were thinking about doing um, uh, a protest the hero thing because I'd gone back and reread your wonderful article on, on that band. And I just like could not survive the majority of their discography, but I really wanted to do another episode. And like I had messaged you about like listening to this will destroy you and like some of these other millennial post rock bands and post metal bands. Um, And you were just like, Oh, I fucking love ISIS. And uh, I was like, why don't we just do that? Because this is a band that always seems shrouded in obscurity um, Mm -hmm. intentionally. So, they were their records that aged well from this genre probably aged the best out of their cohorts. Like I'd say, you know, even the classic nineties post metal stuff, like the, the neurosis records, some of that stuff like through silver and blood is a record that I think is obviously like a classic for a reason and is hugely influential and was this kind of huge, you know, moment for alternative metal in the nineties. But listening to it these days it is kind of just like a claustrophobic mess at times like it's it has not the sound of it has not aged well whereas like that run of isis records all of those albums sound fucking great yeah yeah exactly but in sort of our first chat 
about whether or not we might want to do an episode or whatever. But once we sort of tugged on the thread of ISIS, all of these other things came up because, I mean, I still think it's very funny that we simultaneously discovered ISIS through Jeff Jacques' recommended listening page on the questionable content webcomic website. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> about just about the most two thousands way to discover a band is right. on the recommendations page of a web comic. Like, right, and then you found it. Like you went back yep. and you found um, the the actual thing. I mean, it was so crazy. It was like finding a message in a bottle. Mm -hmm. you know? It is such a time capsule. Like the the stuff that like for those that are, weren't a fan of the of the comic questionable content, it was you know sort of a like indie music slice of life comic it's like all relationship drama and you know it didn't really have too much of a continuous plot line it tried screwing around with that but mostly it was just like oh these are some hipsters hanging out in massachusetts and you know talking about music not exactly the most you know thrilling subject matter but it clearly was coming from like lived experience in its own way and then it had this yeah musical recommendation page that kind of laid out for me at the time, you know, I was reading it as a, you know, in my early teens and it sort of just said, here are all the different ways that you can be into independent music mm. at the time. You know, you could, you could go down the arcade fire route. This is back in before they became, you know, the uh, arena band that they are today or were previously. And, you know, there was all of the Canadian stuff, the, you know, uh, broken social scene. Um, there was, the album leaf, the books, like just all of the, these different types of indie music and scattered throughout it also had, you know, oceanic by ISIS, this incredibly dense and, uh, groundbreaking, uh, metal album that came out in, uh, in two, in the early two thousands. And that I, I remember hearing it at a summer camp shortly thereafter and just having my mind blown by that, that record. I had never heard anything like it. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, I remember reading that about Oceanic and not being able to get any downloads on Winamax mm -hmm. because it was too independent. Like that was often a problem that uh, one would run into. Um, and then when Panopticon came out, I bought it on album cover alone. I was just amazed by this glossy... I mean, it was a CD, so it wasn't as impressive as getting it on vinyl, like, visually. But I was amazed by these high-quality, glossy, aerial views of um, what looked like could be anywhere uh, in the U.S., but was actually parts of California. And it seemed to capture a type of technological um, alienation, even in just that image, um, that I was just starting to come into contact with as a teen. And you know, that album comes out in 2004. So it's a year into the Iraq war and two years after the Patriot Act was passed and something like seven years, six, seven years before Edward Snowden like leaks everything that we need to know about the enormous Panopticon surveillance state that um, Aaron Turner was quite clearly from interviews, even if it's totally obscured in the lyrics, very concerned about. Yeah, to your point, 
that you made early about how the band was intentionally vague. You know, there was a period of time, and I think like it depends on the day, but Aaron Turner, the singer and guitarist of ISIS and sort of considered to be like the guy uh, in the band, even though I would, I would say that their sound is probably more democratically created than some people give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, he would really, he never made much effort to explain his lyrics directly. The only real exception I could find is actually the, the interview that you sent me that he did with Scott Kelly of Neurosis. And you can tell that he kind of opens up a bit more because he's talking to a fellow musician that he clearly has some respect for. Mm-hmm. But usually he would try and like downplay how political the lyrics are or try to not reference any particular political uh, theories. He would just sort of try and make it as vague as possible and give it as much over to the the listener to sort of do the work themselves. But then in the the album artwork, which is also designed by Aaron Turner, um, he like designs all the layouts for all of their all of their releases. There's you know direct quotes from Jeremy Bentham and uh, and uh, Foucault and all that. So it, if you knew how to put the dots together, it was pretty easy to tell what he was freaking out about. Right. Yeah. And I think as someone who's just coming into anything like political consciousness at the time, I mean, I had no idea how to understand the Bentham Foucault thing. I was just too young to really assimilate that. And so I think what I've liked about going back and taking a look at these records is realizing how for a bunch of guys in their early 20s when they put this record out, like early to mid-20s, which is insane, they preempted a lot of things. So maybe it might be helpful to just sort of do like a timeline of the band's releases and like who they are to give listeners a picture of that. Yes. Uh, and then we can start sort of uncovering layers of what we found interesting about going back and listening to this band because their first release is in 2000. Their first full length album. Full length, is in, yeah. Is in 2000. And this is kind of, I think, a crucial part of understanding the history of the band. So they form in the 90s in Boston. Uh, they're part of broadly the same scene that a lot of the sort of classic metalcore bands of that period are from, say, you know, your Converges, your Cavens, and whatnot. And they Aaron Turner also plays in Old Man Gloom, which is a band that was directly connected to those other two bands. So it's all part of the same scene. And at the time, Isis kind of put out this string of EPs and splits and singles. You know, they did a split with Pig Destroyer, I think, where they just both did covers. I think Isis covered Hand of Doom by Black Sabbath, which is a it's a pretty strange listen to be like this, you know, willfully obscure kind of hipster metal band be like, Oh no, here's just a blues riff. (laughs) (laughs) This is also all being released on Aaron Turner's record label Hydra head that he's basically running out of his dorm room from what I can gather about the early days of it. And then this all builds up to their first release on Ipecac records, which is Mike Patton's record label being run on the West coast. Um, called Celestial, and that's the album that you're referring to that was released in 2000. Did you get a chance to listen to much of the uh, the early, early material at all? I didn't get a chance to listen to much of the early material at all. I was very um, seduced by Celestial, mm-hmm. um, I want to say. like I was very surprised at how good it was um, for a first full-length effort. 
and how it seemed more comprehensible to me as, as a metal album than what happens afterwards. Yeah. I think this is something that's common for a lot of bands that have sort of a pre album period and then a post album period. Like I think like you can look at Dillinger escape plan, uh, career arc in a similar way mm-hmm. where they are this kind of like incredibly raw, dense, just like caustic, acidic, hardcore band basically that builds up to this point where they're able to release the full length album version of that idea. And then following that, they kind of get a bit more sophisticated with how they decide to present those ideas on the rest of their career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I, my cousin who got me into black metal and basically metal in general, always referred to calculating infinity as clown core <laughs> because of the weird, like squealing guitar things that they do. He thought it sounded like, you know, circus music. Um, I always thought was really funny. There's definitely a bit of that for sure. Yeah. It's a great, like irreverent 15 year olds, like take on, uh, on that. So yeah, like celestial seemed fully formed, but it makes sense that there's this run up of them finding their sounds and working on that. And like, you know, uh, Aaron Turner worked with a lot of people through old man gloom. If I remember correctly, old man gloom did a split with Dimmu Borger. Is that true? <laughs> that seems like two totally different. Oh, you're thinking of Old Man's Child. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. Yes. Common, Common 2000s, 2000s metal mistake. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. 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 I, you're not thinking of Burning Blood of Christ. You're thinking of Christ's Burning Blood. Um, <laughs> right. No, it's not Hope Dies Today. It's It Dies Today. That's the one we're talking about. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes sense to me that they put out Celestial which already seems to be gesturing in the directions that Oceanic and Panopticon are going to take. I mean, even in the names of these records uh, is bigness. Mm -hmm. Vastness. Vastness, yeah. Space is an aesthetic preoccupation of Aaron Turner's. And those three album covers, if you put them side to side, side by side, they're all basically oriented around a single color, you know, and have a lot of like empty space in their design. So Celestial is like the orange yellowish record. Oceanic is like the, the green one. And then Panopticon is the blue one. And that, that theme sort of gets thrown away by their final two albums, but uh, we'll get to that eventually. Right. Yeah. So they do Celestial and um, it seems to go pretty well for them. And then they go into the studio um, 2001 ish, uh, to record Oceanic, which gets put out in 2002, mm-hmm. um, which you wouldn't know it, uh, but is a narrative concept album. Right. This is not your your average rock opera. You know, there's not much story that is explicitly told to the, the listener in the lyrics, but once you know that the story is there, you can pick up on it. Yeah, totally. Um and with that um, interview he does with the guy from Neurosis, he, uh, Aaron Turner explains the whole backstory to the record. But um, upon listening to it, it is an incredibly dense and complete album as opposed to Celestial, where Celestial very much sounds like a band that has gotten used to cutting EPs and singles. Mm-hmm. And they've put an album together. Oceanic seems like 
less of a collection of songs and more like something fully realized, not just because it has this underarching narrative, but because its sonic passages seem to fit together in a way that's more coherent generally. Right. The album has a definite arc to it. You know, it has this sort of dip in the middle. It, it has like a very common structure where it sort of climaxes up into the first half of the album and then has this more ambient melodic dip and then comes back out of that back up to another climax at the end of the record. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that they were thinking in these like longer structures by that point. It's not just a sequence of increasingly heavy riffs. There's all of these dips in uh, in intensity over the course of each song. They're playing around a lot more with uh, ambient music, with these sort of like dub textures, this sort of wateriness, this mm-hmm. softness that wasn't really present in their sound previously. And that kind of becomes the landmark post-metal sound for its time. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that is really important about this record is it be comes easier to discern outside influences. Mm. What I mean by outside influences isn't just that you can tell who's having an impact on the band, uh, but you can tell who's having an impact on the band outside of metal. Yeah. Right. Which uh, feels important, you know, like there are passages in Oceanic, um, I think in Maritime and I think somewhere else where it sounds like a Radiohead melody is being played on a clean guitar. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also another moment that is almost uh, a section taken out of the keyboard line at the end of Nine Inch Nails Closer, put on loop almost. Yeah. The setup for Isis very crucially had a keyboardist, um, which was not super common for that kind of band at the time. And especially the way that they used keyboards was super different. Usually when you think of like keyboards and metal, you get like people doing string patches or, you know, more orchestral or like openly synthesizer kind of sounds. Whereas Isis, their keyboardist, uh, uh, Cliff Mayer, I believe is his name, kind of knew where to find his spots at, at, to create more of a, an ambience and more of a textural addition where he'd be playing like an organ sound that is distorted that would sort of blend into the guitars in a way that you can't really tell what guitar or keyboard is playing which part. There's this sort of state of confusion that it, it introduces into the sound. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a band that is interested in mystery and is interested in creating sonic ambiguity and that's kind of the the wave that they ride for those two records oceanic and panopticon uh both of which are recorded with matt bayless who also recorded albums with botch and mastodon and uh minus the bear and a lot of that sort of yeah he played keyboards and minus the bear Mm -hmm. for at least some of the time for that band yeah and great keyboardist the records on which he played keyboards are like pretty much the only minus the bear records that i like personally yeah and it's funny because he has a musical background and he learned how to record in nashville and so i think he came into doing these types of records having seen he became very technically proficient doing that because of all the old studio rules that Nashville abides by, um, but also had an interesting learning curve on how to make things work. Because in Nashville, 
uh, as he says in an interview with Tape Bop, even the third order guys that you'd call to come in and fill studio time, they're all like one take Tommies. They can get it done perfectly in like five minutes. And he wasn't used, you know, then he had to go do like indie and like metal records where like, <laughs> that's not the case at all. No, sir. <laughs> Celestial is a great example of that because the drummer had um, a Kevlar snare head. Um, and that whole record had to be mixed around that very weird snare sound because he bought it. That was all he could afford. And that was it. Like there was no other snare head coming. Yeah. It took a while for ISIS to figure out how they, how drums are supposed to sound. Uh, Oceanic, even though I'd say it's a, it's a really great sounding record has a really particular drum sound where it almost sounds like the snare is entirely off. Like it's this sort of like sound instead of like an actual crack. Right. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And the kick and the kick drum doesn't have any attack. They're, the drums are almost this weird pillow underneath the music. So following that, when they get around to their fourth record, and by this point they're, you know, they've opened for Tool and they've become this kind of like buzz band in the indie world. You know, Pitchfork is reviewing their records. They release this album called In the Absence of Truth in 2006. And just from the name alone, you can tell that this is sort of a different approach. You know, no longer are we talking about single large words we're talking about this kind of knot of ideas so the album cover instead of a single color it's these interlocking green like vines it almost looks like or bandages Mm -hmm. and that i think also kind of is an accurate description of the sound they suddenly are much more of a prog band than this kind of dense post-metal sound that they were doing previously where everything is much more melodic. There's a lot more clean singing. The songs take a longer time to get to the loud parts. And there's, you know, polyrhythms and time changes. And the drumming levels up significantly at that point. Uh, Aaron Harris, their drummer at this point, I think has been working with Danny Carey of Tool as a drum tech. And I think you can tell has kind of picked up on some of that uh, that technique, a lot more Tom work, you know, a lot more like multiple limbs doing multiple things at once, that sort of octopus drum sound. And that kind of completely changes the dynamic of the band from that point. Getting all hemiola it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, other members of Tool end up guesting uh, on, the, on this record as well. Yeah. Justin Chancellor had uh, the bassist of Tool had sort of developed a relationship with Isis at that point where he would pop in and do some like improv, like, bass ambience over their songs for some of their jammier tunes and shows up, I think on Panopticon on the, the instrumental track, he's doing some like really low, like sub bass frequencies that pop in here and there. This, at this point, ISIS have moved from Boston to LA. So they're very much like on the doorstep of being like a legitimately successful band, you know, for this kind of music. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, L.A. is uh, an industry town um, in all sorts of ways. Um, And I think since I live here, I think people outside of it, like, see Hollywood and then see L.A. and understand that they're kind of related, but don't, because it's hard to see from outside, understand, like, how totally determining the entertainment industry is, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when you live here. And I mean, I think that 
that changes things. And it's obvious that that has a huge impact on the band um, as late as Aaron Turner discloses um, in sort of a post-mortem interview he does with Music Machine, which he sent me. And he talks about how, you know, he was at a point in his life around the time of when they started recording Panopticon, where he was in a really unhealthy relationship with this woman who was obviously in grad school because he got the idea for Panopticon by like helping her with her schoolwork um, on Foucault uh, and just started smoking a ton of weed to avoid all conflict possible, seeded more creative control that he wanted to the band. And then the band started to have career compromises, right? To begin in Panopticon, they cut in fiction down by two or three minutes so that they can fit it into a music video, which ends up being their first music video, which was something that they had earlier said they were never going to do. Um, And then questions of who are they going to tour with because now they have entry into this top tier touring bracket that most bands don't see. And unlike Planes Mistaken for Stars, who are part of their cohort in a way, and uh, PMFS uh, toured with the Ataris, you know, so they were willing to do that, uh, which mm-hmm. is insane to think about that double bill. Isis and Aaron Turner just couldn't survive that level of abated conflict and conversation. And the band falls apart quickly after they release um, Wavering Radiant, which came out in 2009. Um, and a, yeah, about a year later, they announced that the tour that they're on at that point with uh, Melvin's is going to be their last. And that took place 10 years ago. So it was, it was 10 years ago this month that Isis, the band, ceased to be. They still put out a few like live bootlegs that they'd been sitting on and these sort of tracks that they had in their, you know, Lucy's basically. Yeah, but... but- new material is is done at this point and to this day they've only played one show um together under a different name a uh, celestial for the uh, in memoriam of the uh, the bassist of old man gloom and uh and cave in who who passed away in an accident okay. interestingly enough ago. i saw cave in in 2003 in the last touring Lollapalooza oh wow of which Jane's Addiction and Audio Slave were the headliners yeah I actually think that Caven's kind of an interesting comparison because they actually they did quote unquote sell out in the way that Isis refused to you know they pursued a more melodic sound and went to a major label and I think from everything that I've heard it really kind of fucked up that band for a while like they did not make it out unscathed and ISIS almost have the reverse problem where they, they kind of just curl into themselves and splinter apart. Right. Uh, right. And they also arrive at sort of different moments. I think Caven had been a band for longer. Yeah. Um, and so I think they were probably older and really willing to figure out how to turn it into a career, which is something I didn't understand when I was in my teens and twenties. But now that I'm in my thirties, like I get it. If you're like, well, if I have to make like these three compromises, but I get to like play, I get to not have to worry about rent every time I get home from tour. I'm going to do that. Right. You know, Um, it makes total sense. Um, ISIS couldn't do that because, and I think now we can sort of get into some of the context of the band. 
they're arriving at a really interesting moment in indie music and in technology in America. Mm -hmm. you know, this is before iPhones, but this is after Napster. And there is a big panic about what this is going to do to the music industry. You know, um, I was, when I was talking to you earlier, it was weird to listen to him talk to the guy from Neurosis and remember some of the old debates that seemed endless around how much gatekeeping was impossible now that people could just use like Pro Tools on their laptops. Mm -hmm. And upload directly to MySpace and immediately have an audience. Which... Exactly, exactly. And, you know, uh, him and the guy from Neurosis talk about how weird it is that a band can be together for six months and then all of a sudden have a manager or whatever. Like, I don't know anybody who gives a shit about that anymore. Um, and, like, there's a level of elitism that happens that has good and bad qualities, mm -hmm. you know. Um, part of it is just that elitism sucks because uh, it's exclusive and that's difficult, you know. Uh, on the other hand, I think it made for better music criticism because it wasn't this totally 1099 out industry um, of diminishing returns where all you're really doing is either writing a takedown or you're writing ad copy. Right. Cause anything in between doesn't, doesn't draw enough attention to justify its existence in the eyes of the publications. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, even if you're doing some of that writing for free, mm -hmm. you know, and you can hear that tension in that interview but it's also what, and Aaron Turner is uh, alive to this, what allows ISIS to succeed. Because as he says, a middle ground shows up between uh, over and underground. And it was really interesting to hear him say in like 2007, like I can't really tell the difference anymore between um, over and underground music. Like that's starting to disappear. And I think we now just like sort of live in that as an assumption. Um, yep. That seems totally vague and a non-meaningful distinction. Right. Like even in, like, in metal specifically, like our Baroness and underground band are deaf heaven and an underground band. Does that even feel like a useful categorization anymore? Like the lines, I mean, metal in general is basically underground unless you're, you know, Iron Maiden or something. Or I guess like I don't even know like the 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 idea the stadium bands are a dwindling number and everything else is just kind of shrunk into this middle space that you're describing which I think that it's in, yeah very interesting to hear Aaron Turner talking about that kind of just as it's starting to be created yeah and we find again we find it through this web comic which is its own internet niche that um, everyone is surprised by you know. Uh, I worked in a comic shop all through middle school and high school. So I was like very interested in the problem that web comics posed because I quote unquote worked in the industry. Right. Yeah. So I was aware that there were tensions there to begin with. Um, and it was something that people were worried about, but there was this whole moment where there was a debate about what was going to happen to music, what was going to happen with technology and how these things were going to work together. And it seems like there were going to be, it was a very contested field. And that's over now because the digital commons has been more or less enclosed by major social media sites and Spotify and Apple Music. Like that's pretty much it now. I don't know if anyone listens to Tidal, no offense. And I guess Bandcamp is in the running there too, but they're such their own thing and 
Joe Holt, who founded Bandcamp, was like my academic advisor uh, in college that I know exactly why it's weird in the way that it's weird in a good way. It's almost like finding this forgotten history. It feels defamiliarizing to go into these albums and, and look at them and to listen to them yep. and to understand that they also capture, and this is something I talked to you about when I sent you the video for In Fiction, which I'd never watched before, the like slate grays and blues and mm -hmm. the societal paranoia and individualistic pessimism of that video, which matches honestly the aesthetic of the album quite well, I think. Very much part of like Rumsfeldian America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, I think it's, it's crucial to point out that you you brought up the Panopticon album art as sort of this like keystone memory that you have associated. Like the, it's what, you know, you bought it sight unseen based on the album cover. Yeah, and... I wanted to know what music could explain that visual to me yeah. because I had been in planes, I had seen that 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 type of landscape, and I needed there to be a soundtrack to it. Right. Uh, let's. I'd like to talk about the uh, the content of ISIS's music a bit because. Yeah, let's do. I. I want to be like very upfront and anyone that actually listens to Lamniforms will probably already know this already, but this is like one of my favorite bands. This collection of five albums I think is pretty much unimpeachable in this style of music. I think that they're one of the best to ever do it period. Um, I also feel like they are at, are sort of teetering on the edge of being discredited or not being taken as a serious enough part of heavy metal history anymore because of, you know, the fact that Aaron Turner has since gone on to uh, be in this band Sumac that I think has kind of supplanted ISIS in a lot of people's memories and a lot of people's uh, attention. And in general, this whole post-metal wave, there's few other bands that are really up to snuff. And I say this is as someone who, you know, released a post-metal record last year. I'm not up to snuff. <laughs> like... This is really difficult stuff to pull off. And ISIS did it with uh, with flying colors. And I think part of that is their thematic interests are really, really precise. They have this recurring images of sort of like divine femininity in their music, as the name would kind of allude to. Water comes up a lot and sort of ISIS being like the goddess of water. There's a lot of insects and therefore like insects that are worshipful of like the queen of the hive. And there's this sort of sense of being like the individual being subsumed into a larger system, you know? And Panopticon is an interesting record because it kind of removes a lot of that more poetic and more like mythological imagery and replaces it with something that is much more literal and much more grounded in uh, the reality that the band members are actually living in, which is the surveillance state. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And at a time when there were still questions about what surveillance was possible within the internet, mm -hmm. you know, which again was weird to realize that like, oh yeah, we had this whole debate about that and it just sort of ended and we all assume it's happening and it's just whatever. Yeah, that's fine. You know, <laughs> like, right. it's not this thing you think you can solve because it's happening. It's something that's already decided for you. Yeah, I, I feel like the vibe in the 2000s is actual, actually paranoid 
you know, uh, because there's there's still the possibility of that you aren't being observed, you know, whereas and this is kind of actually counter to something that you wrote sort of recently. But I think that we're almost in this like if everything is paranoid and if everyone is paranoid, then no one is sort of state these days. Totally. I mean, I think there's a total argument for that. So like one thing we could say is that like um, the problem isn't so much political paranoia as such. And this is something that, you know, maybe in a follow-up to the piece I wrote, which is called paranoia, amnesia, nostalgia, the Holy Trinity of American politics. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But that there becomes, there's a problem of narrative breakdown and of discerning truth from untruth happening at the same time, mm-hmm. which encourages the type of paranoid connecting the dots. Yeah. Right? And this is happening at a structural level. In the early 2000s, it's almost like you are worried that that might be possible because you all of the establishment, the establishment sense-making apparatus of society its cultural institutions, its news institutions, even its legal institutions are now suddenly under assault through technological or bi-technological means, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so that's what's happening. Like the idea that you could download music for free um, or ha- seemed to happen outside of the eye of the state. Now, I'm pretty sure Spotify could spy on me whenever the hell it wants, if it so chose to open its doors to the state, you know? And Right. The business model of, of Spotify and of Netflix and other streaming sites are, it's like, they tell you that they're spying on you. They tell you that they are tracking what you're listening to and, you know, how you're doing it and what playlists you like. It's explicitly in the pitch to you as a consumer that they are watching your every move on those platforms because they use that to then say, well, now we can create the personalized playlist just for you. This is the music that you're going to enjoy. And we know because we know you so well because we're spying on you. Right. And that's that seems impossible in this era. And so to bring it back to sort of the content of the music, I think that's what's really interesting about um, the concern, the aesthetic concern about the subsumption of the individual into a larger tapestry or a larger framework, be it mythopoetic, be it like epistemological problems, uh, as in, in the absence of truth, or whether it be like actual political in mm-hmm. Panopticon, you know? Yeah. Th- we should mention the completely fucking bizarre story that hand like, hangs behind oceanic too just because it's worth thinking about and i think gets out of a lot of the interesting thematic concerns that aaron turner has as a lyricist so it's apparently it is a story about a man who falls in love with a woman invests himself entirely in that relationship to the point that he loses himself and then learns that this woman is actually in an incestuous relationship with her brother and then commits suicide by jumping into the ocean and the sort of twist at the end of the record is that it's actually the ocean that he becomes part of. He subsumes himself. He becomes entirely subsumed by the ocean, you know, and that's the actual completion that he was looking for originally with in this relationship. And I think the, uh, the uh, important prelude to that is that 
he has been living in almost total isolation with his actual wife before he meets this woman, mm-hmm. which I think is important only because that's a, a more extreme type of loneliness than just isolation. Right? It's a deep inner sadness that almost you almost get no relief from because there's somebody right there all the time. Yeah. It's, it, it, did you ever watch Mad Men? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the Leonard speech at the end of the show, you know, like that kind of alienated loneliness, the sense that no matter who you were around, you yourself are cut off from all else. You know, it's entirely an internal feeling that doesn't have a reflection in the real world is, you know, it is caused by things that are happening to you in the real world, but it, it so completely turns you into yourself that you're unable to then reach out and actually connect with other people. Right. Right. And so I think that's what's interesting about how the um, sort of shell game of release. Mm-hmm. Where first it seems like it's going to be this woman, but instead it ends up being his own suicide and um, his dip into and becoming subsumed by the ocean that gives him the relief that he wanted, which is also like deeply Freudian um, mm-hmm. in terms of, it's been a while since I've read it, what Freud talks about in civilization and its discontents that in the modern era, you're no longer able to return to sort of like the oceanic. He literally uses that language togetherness of like the mythopoetic era. You know, I'm probably messing it up a little bit, but it's there. Yeah. I get what you're, you're saying. And definitely on like a symbolic level, the idea that, you know, ISIS have always linked the, you know, the ocean and water with uh, a sort of feminine energies, what they're, they, that's the sort of, material that they're using to build up uh, their lyrics from. Uh, so there's definitely a Freudian thing there of sort of returning to the ocean, returning to the womb kind of idea. And then the thing that I find really clever is in the, in the absence of truth sort of directly tries to fuck with this mythology in its own way. You know, like in interviews leading up to it, he explicitly references like, like Borges and, uh, House of Leaves that, you know, it, Don Quixote shows up in the lyrics at one point. One, one of the songs is called Dulcinea. And then also they reuse the music from Maritime, the melody of it, that one that you s- described as sounding sort of Radiohead-ish in the closing track of In the Absence of Truth. Yeah. So it's almost like they're saying like, we've also constructed a lie mm-hmm. that you're now trapped in, you know? Yeah, it's interesting, especially the figure of like Borges, let's say. So here's an interesting way to think about this. So there's an obscure Italian philosopher from the 1600s named Jean-Baptiste Vico. And he writes a book called The New Science. And The New Science is a deeply strange book uh, that tries to respond to Newton and Descartes by saying, well, maybe you don't want to just do this deductive reasoning thing. Maybe, in fact, there's an inductive, historical, cultural, linguistic reading of human truth that gives you access to the development of humankind and that we can look at that. And he has a whole system for how to do that. But one of the things that he points out is that an axiom that he uses is the tendency for the phrase, man can be the measure of all things, right? Mm -hmm. An extreme example of this is from the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus, who has this great fragment where he says, the sun is about the size of a human foot. Because it's like, well, yeah, he like literally like looked at those two things and was like, yeah, it's about that big. <laughs> now, as the mythopoetic era sort of starts to come to an end and we enter into you know more modern times, it due to the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, all these things, 
uh, we can no longer do the man is the measure of all things uh, in the phenomenal world because we start to understand that that isn't true. However, it ends up being our own psychologies that become the measure of all things. And a good thing to do is to take a look at the Odyssey or Ulysses and compare it to James Joyce's Ulysses. Right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, right. So that's a map of one day in Dublin that works in the mythopoetic uh, tradition only in the extent that it can be an allusion to, but not recreation of a broad mythopoetic structure. Borges creates these mythical libraries or whatever to explore what end up being the confines of the human mind and its ability to know and understand what's happening. So in, in the absence of truth, through its own Borgesian references and what Aaron Turner is trying to do with it, you see the band undermining its ability to make grand narratives itself. That mm -hmm. in fact, the shifting nature of what we might understand to be true, perspectival problems, epistemological problems, uh, becomes a realm for the aesthetic expression of more radical mysteries and ambiguities than they were willing to allow for up until that point. And that's why I think Ra Wavering Radiant doesn't make any fucking sense. Their final album is, the, to the other point that you, you brought up, is that you know Aaron Turner has said that he basically just was walking around in a cloud of weed smoke for their last two albums. And to be fair, all of their records are pretty stony, but the last two especially it almost, it does feel sort of just like these like vague references to sort of living in the world of the dead um, in wavering radiant. And this, the sense almost that the band itself is dead, even on the album. Like there's not, there's no more life in this world that ISIS have built for themselves. Meaning is gone. There's nothing there. Uh, so that the only thing left to do is to transcend that in some way to sort of end that phase of of their career. Uh, and that's why the the final track, Threshold of Transformation, is sort of the only emotionally resonant moment on the album to me, because it suddenly gets way more focused in terms of its melodic construction. The band just sort of tightens in like the the scope narrows into this like really moving melody in a way that the band like never did at any other point in their career, it becomes like an anthemic moment and it's about transforming. It's about waving goodbye to what once was, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting to see also things that the band, even if they didn't innovate themselves, that they were on the crest of. And so one small example might be the fact that they had a remix album for a post-metal album, which seemed like insane to me, um, <laughs> but was something that was really popular at the time. Right. I think Nine Inch Nails did a similar thing with Year Zero around that time. Yeah. Nine Inch Nails had a, a few different remix albums prior to. There's like the Fixed EP, which is like the remix album of Broken, uh, Further Down the Spiral. Uh, this is also the same era, of course, as the uh, reanimation, the Linkin Park. Yeah. Um, but, you know, up until that, like, uh, it seemed like Trent Reznor was speaking to like a more underground or unspoken tradition that had to do with like electronic music or stuff in general um bands doing this as like a single effort um felt sort of new at the time or, or maybe a rehash that had been establishing itself in a new way um but another way and we talked about this was i think this is my pet like 
materialist technological idea is that post-metal and stuff like that starts to become appealing in the late 2000s because iPods exist. Mm -hmm. And you can have music that sounds like a soundtrack to your life at any time. And instrumental music is perfect for that. And I think that there is a direct line between oceanic and lo-fi hip-hop beats to chill and study to on YouTube. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's this coffee place near my apartment that the only two types of music that are ever playing when I go in there, and it's a, it's a nice place. I'm not saying this to like denigrate them, but yeah. it's either post-rock or it's lo-fi beats to study to. Mm-hmm. And I think that they, they serve in a, a really similar purpose, which is that it makes you feel like the main character in your drama. And, you know, post-rock as separate from post-metal was especially good at this. Uh, bands like Explosions in the Sky, Sear, Rose, um, This Will Destroy You, I think is kind of straddles the line between the two, but probably, probably more post-rock than post-metal. All of this stuff, that, it seems insane to try and explain this to kids now who are probably hear this and think like, this sounds like a commercial for a car, you know, or this sounds like Levi's jeans music. Um, this was actually all like underground and kind of cutting edge stuff at its time. Well, yeah, exactly. Except it's cutting edge for a brief second, right? Because in 2005, the year after Panopticon comes out, explosions in the sky does the soundtrack for Friday Night Lights, the movie with right, Billy right. Bob Thornton, right? And then they do the soundtrack again for Lone Survivor. Man, that fucking movie. Starring Mark Wahlberg. Um, <laughs> and I mean, like, basically, uh, football movies in America are really about two things. They're about race and war. Mm-hmm. And one way to see Friday Night Lights is a very sentimental American obsession with the underdog and sort of a pettier kind of interest in its own diversity and can-do spirit. I mean, it's a good movie. I actually like that movie a lot, uh, but I understand what it's doing at a moment when America is literally literally at war. Um, And to show that sort of the critical edge of not just post-rock, but music that comes before it, uh, is at a dead end is that the refused song the new noise is used as the intro music to the final football game in friday night lights <laughs> right it's it's a practical joke on the band almost the idea that like you thought you were reinventing punk but you just made a fight song like that's all that it comes down to yeah you know like right, you, right. Uh, like i can just as I can now do bench rep press reps uh, to Nation of Ulysses albums. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> ISIS, I feel like, are safe from a lot of that sort of co-option of uh, the commercialization of post-rock, in part in their own doing by sort of moving away over the course of their career from the sort of quiet, loud dichotomy. But also, even in their more post-rock period, they were more interested in not going all the way down to zero and roaring all the way back up to 10, but kind of like sliding down to four, you know, 
and having this sustained tension that isn't necessarily melodic tension. It's more rhythmic tension and textural tension that gets released, you know, whereas a lot of the post-rock bands that are now, you know, a lot of that stuff is basically just U2. It is just like, here are the chords that make you feel like, you know, asking at your crush out. Like this is the like high school drama music. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's very easy for that stuff and the textures that went along with that stuff to get co-opted uh, in a way that ISIS were not. Right, exactly. Yeah, I had a, a phrase for that type of thing, which is genre core, you know, um, everything that can kind of fit into the algorithm of specific genres and how that gets marketed to people and it comes to take on certain cultural meaning based on repetition and like advertising inflection. Right. You know, so yeah, like it's easy to hear a post-rock song now from the early 2000s, like let's say uh, Explosions in the Skies. Um, I think it's like, or no, this is This Will Destroy You, I Believe in Your Victory. Mm-hmm. And be like, oh, like this is the closing credits to like a CW teen show um, about kids who all attempt suicide at the same time and meet each other at a recovery place and learn how to fit their awkward broken hearts back together in the puzzle that is their lives together. You know, (laughs) it goes right there. Um, But yeah, ISIS is refuge from that in part because of one metal can just never be like absorbed so easily in that way because it's gruffness is harder to make palatable not that you can't ever but um you know it's it's just more difficult to do less people want to hear it right it's also it kind of has a lot of cultural associations that uh when metal does show up it's always like you know skid from uh toy story you know it's like the or like the the sort of like the bus driver it's the 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 people that are not it's mockable figures usually, usually is what I'm trying right. to yeah, say. Yeah, it's side characters. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's the flat characters of the narrative mm-hmm. and it's used to announce like... This dude's kind of a fuck up. <laughs> right, usually, right. And that. it's also, to, it's usually somebody like bringing you somewhere else. Mm-hmm. It's the music of transition, right? That's why what's so interesting about the movie Hesher uh, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt who plays like a heavy metal type and there's heavy metal all through that music but he's not really a character. He's an archetype and his job is to bring the characters to their own conclusions. Right. 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 It's he's yeah. never something in and of himself. I do want to point out that what's interesting about the early part of ISIS's career is that they were explicitly sort of like the way that they were covered was in relation to that archetype, you know, of the, the classic like Hesher heavy metal guy, you know, with like the jean jacket and the long hair and all that. And ISIS were these like clean cut, you know, short hair, maybe some like stubble, uh, like black t-shirts, no band logos. And, th- you know, Hydra had called itself like thinking man's metal was like their tagline. And there was this kind of fascination in the early two thousands of like metal musicians read, <laughs> you know, like this is the era of Mastodon's Leviathan, which got covered in the New York times because it was referencing Moby Dick. You know? Yeah. Because uh, the lead singer, like, basically took Adderall on a flight to Japan and read Moby Dick in one sitting, <laughs> decided to write the <laughs> album about it, which is amazing, you know? And 
that's sort of a thing that I feel like also, uh, no, you, it's hard to peg what type of band ISIS are. Like their sound is metal, but they consciously tried to, even the remix album, it's, you know, ambient artists remixing their music, uh, hip hop producers remixing their music. It's, it is not a straight down the middle. The, they kept weird company, you know, they toured with uh zombie who were this like two piece synth, like, soundtrack band and Dalek who were this like sort of shoegazy hip hop group from New York. Like they, they deliberately tried to fuck with any ideas of like what sort of band they were. Right. And that was, you know, the potential of indie and stuff like that at the time um, before it became solidified into whatever we see it as now. Um, And you can even see that to take it back to the Jeff Jacques recommendation thing. Right. Is that it is like, American analog set, broken social scene, the album leaf, the books, um, all of these bands that could keep company in rotation with ISIS because there was this interesting, wistful um, curiosity with tapestry and atmosphere. I mean, M83 is on that list. What is interesting about ISIS is ISIS, unlike those bands, especially M83, is that they were anti-nostalgic. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't interesting in recapturing a feeling for you, which is something that I would say Explosions in the Sky does really well. I remember the head of Explosions in the Sky, I don't know what you'd call him because they're sort of like one unit, said that um, the way that they wrote their albums was they imagined scenes to movies that didn't exist. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's not what ISIS is doing. They're writing a story and then only telling you the half of it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they restrain themselves from giving you full access, which also means that you can't use it as a vehicle for totally leaping back into yourself is that it still maintains a dimension of otherness and doesn't cater to a sort of like post Christopher Lashian, like, uh, culture of narcissism that I think honestly some of the more genre quarry instrumental music that we've talked about does mm-hmm. um, because it's the soundtrack to your life you're the star right yeah Isis I, I can never I've never done like the really in-depth musical analysis to figure out why they how they do this but they somehow are able to create like these huge emotionally climactic parts in their music that I cannot identify what the emotion is, you know, like the end of, uh, of the last track on Panopticon grinning mouths, which is just, I think is put it in the metal hall of fame. Like one of the best pieces of music ever to come out of the genre. You know, it's, it's this moment of total uncertainty. Like the, the final lyrics are, is it there? Are they there? And the music is, happy sounding almost but it's punishingly loud it is just like crushing you with its weight but the actual underlying harmony sounds like triumphant in some way and that tension makes it so that you can't turn it into like yeah it it, it refuses nostalgia it refuses rosy uh like it, it cannot be turned into 
um, a fond memory. It only exists in the present as you're listening to it is the sort of sensation I get when I'm totally, I think that's what grabbed me when I went back and listened to these albums while again, doing this sort of deep dive into them, unlocked all of these other old things that certainly made me feel nostalgia for other parts of my life. It's not like when I hear this one specific explosions in the sky song where I have this huge nostalgia for finding an obscure live bootleg website and some back channel of the internet and finding a really beautiful version of that song at 3 a.m. alone in my bedroom in high school and crying to it as the snow came down in suburban Illinois. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, ISIS, ISIS aren't there for that. They're no, not, they... <laughs> the closest I get is remembering how green everything looked when I used to look out the window of the Metro on the train ride to school in the morning. Uh -huh. Because it has this, that same color palette almost yeah. in Panopticon. <laughs> you know? But that's it. You know, like it's, it's never, it will never give me that. And that way I think that I find the releases very dignified in that way. And that these were young guys who were consummately thoughtful and capable artists. And it's a shame to me that they seem to have been more or less forgotten um, as we've moved into this, to this era. Um, because what was weird is when that, the album cover just flashed in my mind, I was just like, man, I haven't heard anyone talk about these guys in forever. Whereas people will still mention members of sort of their like um, heavy extreme music cohort for the period, like Converge or Dillinger Escape Plan. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I have friends that still like listen to Russian circles all the time. But I was right. like, why don't we ever talk about ISIS? Like these guys really, really did that shit. And we're on a totally different intellectual wavelength than a lot of other bands, you know? Because um, it seemed to me like, to use the Converge example, uh, it always seemed to me like Jay Bannon was trying to be more of a lyricist and artist than he was in some ways. And I always respected him from that, but it always seemed to converge could often slip into sort of sentimentality or cringiness. Yeah. I know. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Whereas uh, ISIS never really did that. Zero sentiment to their music. Yeah. Zero sentiment. While at the same time having this emotional, uh, emotionally powerful, psychologically interesting structure to their music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it the emotion comes from what you invest in it rather than what the music is telling you to feel. Right. Yeah. I find something, I find things outside of myself when I listen to ISIS, it doesn't find something in me and exorcise it the way that I feel catharsis in other art. Yeah. You know, which isn't bad, you know, um, it's just what makes them unique. You know, it's, it's just the one way that they are different from their contemporaries, from their predecessors and from their imitators. Yeah. Um, they refuse to give you an easy answer at all times. They only became more inscrutable over time. And that's, I, I'm almost kind of, now that we're getting to, I think sort of like the wrapping up point of this, I, I'm almost glad that they have to be discovered, you know, that they're, that they aren't lionized in the way that these other bands from that period are, that they are this like maybe kind of increasingly obscure part of metal history, because that means that anyone who does get into them 
will actually have a more similar experience with their music mm-hmm. uh, to the way that we felt when we got into them than they would had they been since overexposed and overhyped. Right. It sort of reminds me of that um, Chris Ott video on goth. Mm-hmm. You know, he's doing it when bands like Ice Age are getting really big and everyone's like, oh, there's this post-punk revival, which is true in a way. But what he points out is that like, actually it's goth because goth was the response to punk before post-punk. Uh, right, right. And what we think of as post-punk is actually what was some of the earliest goth music. Um, it's just that uh, people's idea of goth um, after the 90s is like Marilyn Manson and Hot Topic, when those things aren't necessarily the the lineage. So he's interested in like setting the record straight a little bit, but only for those who are willing to actually spend the time to care about that history. And I think before, you know, I'd be like, well, you know, this is like gatekeepy and elitist or whatever, but it's like, yeah, I'm not really interested in stopping from anybody from making or listening to a particular type of music, but um, learning to appreciate these things is really for a self-selecting pool of people, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And what I'm interested in doing is providing insights and context for those people who elect to look backwards, uh, which seems to be uh, a dwindling few as time marches on. We've given people a lot of material here to uh, a lot of tools to listen to their music, to think about the impact they may or may not have had. I don't know. I, just, I love talking about this band in part because there is no easy conclusion, you know? Yeah. There's no way to really end it. You know, it's hard to know what to say about them. I'm surprised that we got as much out of what we did, not because there's not a lot there, but because it uh, doesn't give you, as you said, any easy answers. The only thing that I would have to say um, about this band is that they give me the sense of being totally overwhelmed sonically rather than swallowed. Mm. Um, and that's an interesting feeling to have. I feel like, as we said, you know, it can't be just totally enmeshed. But I guess that's just a repeat. So I'm just really glad that I, we got to spend some time talking about this because um, it's a band that uh, repays tenfold whatever effort you give to listen to them a hundred percent excellent well thank you so much Emmett, for for coming on the pod talking to me again i'm sure i'll have you back another time and i'm sure we'll continue these kind of conversations uh because we like talking about music and that's just what it comes down to (laughs) absolutely man thank you thank you again for listening and thank you Emmett, for joining me you can find Emmett's writing on medium at dumb aristotle You can find more episodes of the podcast on the Apple Podcast app or at soundcloud.com slash lamniforms-sounds. And you can follow me on Twitter at lamniforms underscore or on Instagram at Ian K. More episodes soon. Until next time.